वेलकम टू सिंट टॉक द सिंट टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द कॉन्टेक्स्ट ऑफ द इम्प्लिसिट विल थिंक अबाउट द इम्प्लिसिट इन द टैसिट इन अ वराइटी ऑफ कॉन्टेक्स्ट does recognizing the implicit require separation do implicit and explicit lie on the same spectrum is the deep premodern wild world still and will always be amidst us how does sense live in the non-linguistic world what role does the body play is implicitness subject dependent how lumpy or intricate is it what does the video tape of a dance not have that the dance has what will we remember of our dreams and what will survive our death We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Dr. Trina Nilina Banerjee. Her interests are in performance studies and gender studies. She is at CSS in Calcutta. Dr. Seema Khan Walker. Her research interests are in linguistics and semiotics. She is currently professor at SEPT University in Ahmedabad. and dr venugopal madhipatti he is an architect and an art historian and teaches at ambedkar university in delhi um so seema why don't we set the ball rolling with you um what is implicit okay thank you so much for inviting me and thank uh, you for coming it's a privilege to be here with two of my colleagues and to discuss this uh, um amazing awake thing yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i think for me um i would see the implicit as a binary of the explicit and uh, both sort of coexist um the implicit to me uh, is uh, dependent on the rendering the performance and the um the outsideness which uh gives a sense of what a person may be thinking at a given point of time because i don't think there's something called time immemorial thinking it is context dependent it is time dependent you know so uh at a at that given point of time and which is why societies have created what, what do you mean that they coexist i mean do you mean it in the sense that there needs to be something explicit for the implicit to be contained within yes. it it lies yes. in its yes and like what is this relation between the two i know you said opposite but it doesn't it's difficult to form no so a binary opposite is relational right. it is not an opposite sure. so it, one depends on the other mm-hmm. for its identity mm-hmm. right so what is rendered in a performance for example um in a theatrical performance is at a given point of time 
the implicit at that time right. you know mm-hmm. so it is not something it's which not is not a frozen implicit it's not a frozen implicit to me so i believe that one has to uh, capture cultures genres or um, you know anything at what it means so because for me in semiotics i would look at what something means at a given point of time and hence today in today's world that is even more relevant because you know we are all the time into historical uh, questions you know and uh, if only our society sort of looks at what for example a festival means at this point of time because it has changed you know time is never frozen culture is never frozen culture keeps evolving culture is so dynamic and hence we also have lexicons which keep changing so you know you have a dictionary which is produced every 6 months because so what so what is explicit so if you say festivals or performance or theater so what is visual what is heard what is sensed what is what you can touch uh, what you can feel evocative in design it could be touch feel aesthetics so that is what is the rendering of the explicit in that sense so at so for me uh, i don't look at the implicit as going back in time i look at it at a given point of time and i look at it influenced by the diachronic dimension which is through history but capture it at that point of time because more because that's what we need today but there is memory there is history. there is absolutely there is memory there is a recall uh, but for example in my phd research when i worked on this community in goa mm-hmm. there was a lot of painful recall see they were the first settlers in goa this was the gaudas the tribal community but the memory of their past was so painful that what made them actually um uh, Uh, happy or accept themselves was because every year they performed this festival called zagor at a given point in the in the in the year and everybody came together yeah and all contexts were forgotten it was that moment for which they lived and so it's a life cycle it's very anthropological in the sense that life cycle rituals help you to to render something at a given point of time and help you to cope with what is called these memories because they don't even have an identity even today they're not even SESTs they're not OBCs they're nothing so for them it's an identity construct so it is in the explicit which gives them and it is implicit because it can't be made explicit or it is not made explicit yeah it's not made implicit it's, it's, it's is it ineffable it cannot be articulated it cannot be articulated so what we call is displacement uh, so they don't articulate certain things because a it cannot be articulated b they have no vocabulary to articulate it So because the, in this example you spoke about it could be some form of repression right you just bury it down in a memory yes. in some shape or form uh, it, it it's a way of coping it's a way of coping it's a way of overcoming the past and appealing to the future hmm. that we belong to this society and we are here we are still here don't 
you know society cannot afford to forget us so it's a strange kind of memory where yeah. where where its recollection is important in some shape or form but it doesn't live every day what is it for you trina what is what is the implicit what is the implicit i was just thinking as um, uh, she was speaking um how universal is it i mean the idea of the implicit i yes. think it is contextual so i completely agree with uh, her uh, so far as um, uh, the idea that there cannot be an a historical universal implicit hmm. what is implicit in a certain situation has to be context and uh, uh politics dependent in many ways so i was actually thinking a little bit about say for example somebody like jacques ronsier who would talk about something called the partition of the sensible mm-hmm. where he's saying that in every political situation there's a certain uh partition of what is visible sayable uh perceivable in a particular situation and what is beyond the visible sayable and perceivable right and that constitutes a partition of the sensible at that point of time so what lies beyond that partition ronsia would suggest has everything to do with the social and political context what can and cannot be said what can even be perceived in some senses so i mean really and this is this is by individuals or by by communities by, by communities both? by communities it cannot actually be uh, the individual who decides what becomes sayable and perceivable in a particular situation those are so in at, at one point ronsier also says that the only truly political question at any point of time is the question which um in fact cannot be asked mm. in a particular situation and that is not decided by individuals that is decided by the particular let's say i mean to refer- you mean it in the sense of taboo or you mean it in the sense of inaccessible uh both in some senses it's a conscious taboo and other cases it is also just the the formulation of that question becomes impossible at that point of time so this is something that various cultural anthropologists would have talked about say for example when you go back to somebody like clifford geertz you would find him right. saying that culture is actually a set of control mechanisms it's a recipe for how right. we act so for any particular situation we might have multiple possibilities but even the possibility is that we can envision are entirely controlled uh, uh, by the culture that we belong to so what we can imagine our freest choice is still controlled by culture so what lies outside that is perhaps what is implicit so it's determined entirely by a particular context and time so you would think of it in terms of constraints or oh uh, in some senses so there's a, it's an interesting debate in in sociology and anthropology it's a structure agency debate that's what that's what it's called right. so uh, geertz would go back to max weber to say that you know a human being is suspended in webs of meaning mm. that are of his own creation mm. so the image is that of a spider so he is trapped in the web but mm. the web is something he has built himself right so how free is he right that's the paradox there yeah. right so True. so so therefore uh, that's also maybe to go back to linguistics would be the relationship between lang and parole absolutely. right absolutely right so it can change ultimately I mean, he can weave the we- web differently but over time I mean, he's still controlled by 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 the by the network within which he is suspended so there's a yeah so so just to add to her point about control I mean even uh, freeing oneself is a matter of control I mean for Ge- for Clifford Gates for example the people of Bali uh, would be controlled from 
in uh, from the in the weekdays and on the weekends they would express themselves uh, very freely during the cock fights or you know when they would uh, gather and they would abuse uh, each other in the name of their whoever they wanted to abuse but even that was controlled so it ended on sunday night and yeah, try monday yeah. morning they go back to, to their routine to, to their to being what they are so it is uh, a very contextual uh, sense of freedom which uh, but we need that you know mm. i mean given the fact that we all need uh, expressions or you know explicit expressions of even um, feeling free Mm-hmm. Sort of, a, or imagining yourselves to be free. You know, there is a way in which, if one think thinks of it somewhat linguistically in the context mm-hmm. of language, the sense, uh, you know, as opposed to the reference, let's say, mm-hmm. is 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 implicit there, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there there is a sense that is implied, the the whole idea of implying, the whole idea of implicit, and so on. But what about the non-linguistic domain, right? Vinay Gopal. I mean, there is there is obviously stuff. writing or whatever is a special mm. way of articulating but there are the ways of articulating right i mean there are is there such a thing as the implicit in let's say in the architectural context in the art context the areas that you are somewhat more familiar with and and and, and the important thing is to also try and distinguish whether these are different kinds of implicit right i think the kind of implicit mm. that you would see on theater on stage in the quotidian mm. daily life and in in what mm. is implied in a poem or a literary work versus um. Yeah, I mean, um there's I think it depends. Um one is that like um uh, when one categorizes the explicit for instance and uh one is talking about visual representation, um words, speech. Um it's possible to also think of the visual as being implicit in comparison to speech for instance so i can you can introduce the these divisions you know between different sensory realms so so for instance what uh, a text will say uh could sound explicit but the visual for instance can become implicit as opposed to saying that the visual is explicit you know right so i think there is a way in which different uh realms of representation um sort of can contest each other so in a certain sense the implicit is also a space of contestation that's that's one part of the thing um i'll try and come to architecture uh in a bit but i think like i also wanted to sort of uh add one uh category which is uh oftentimes at least in my understanding i would try and find parallels between that and the implicit which is this category called givenness uh yeah. which is uh which comes from a certain uh german tradition of gegenheit um and um, i think it's picked up a lot in martin heidegger's uh thinking uh what gives is a question that he always asks in his writing uh but the idea of givenness is something which is i mean if you actually go back to the you know the early sort of tradition of phenomenology you have in edmund husserl's writing you have these two categories which are intuition and intention oh. so he starts off with intuition as being the sort of central founding sort of you know um idea which he wants to pursue but he ends up going to you know into writing about intention but when you're talking about and givenness what what is intuition some kind of recipe of this history intuition would be like uh, what we would sort of what our senses and what everything would actually give to us as experience right intention would be where we are sort of somehow you know 
having some agency in this matter. That would be a rough kind of a division. But I think this idea of intuition presents a peculiar challenge in phenomenology because it, it sort of asks, uh, it, it suggests that there are certain things that are in excess of our capacity to know them. There are certain experiences that are in excess of our capacity to classify them, to sort of identify specific intentional states to which they correspond. So they're fundamentally unknowable. They're fundamentally unknowable and then they sort of, they refer to a rest of it, which is outside of our intentional states, right? So there's a more recent sort of phenomenologist who sort of takes this particular idea of givenness in excess very seriously. His name is Jean-Luc Marion. And uh, in some of his uh, writings, which is also contested because he's, he sort of he is somebody who believes he's a, he's a, he, he is into religion, and so he takes a religious perspective. Where he says that there is uh, there is something outside of our capacities to intuit, which gives itself to us, which is only fully intuitable by another being, which he would identify as God. So in that sense, he sort of places the implicit as an explicit perhaps for somebody else, but not for us, right? We can only sort of, with, with our finite capacities to perceive, we can only sort of, you know, um, define a sort of a restricted small domain of what can actually so be. So what is implicit is implicit for us. It has something to do with how we are as human beings or... It is, and I think in... Architecture, for instance, I mean, this is like uh, one of the things that, at least in, 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 a, in a way as some architects would understand the role of architecture as a sort of uh, uh, artifact, is to see it as a form of representation that mediates between what is implicit in cultural terms and what is explicit. So how does that happen? It's partly because architecture or built form is oftentimes considered to be an implicit part of our you know, everyday experiences. It's not as if we are observing our built environment, right? So it already comes loaded with this idea of being something that is implicit to experience. So which makes it ideal to sort of mediate between a realm which is a world of the implicit and the explicit. So it's, it's a kind of a midway kind of artifact, So which is why architecture becomes a particularly interesting uh, uh, space to understand this question of givenness, you know, unlike other artifacts, because it's, it, it actually is the language of givenness. Because architecture, on the one hand, is that which is already given. So you're saying it's some way or process of articulating at least a part of the implicit that pre-exists? Yes. I mean, that's at least how some architectural thinkers have actually approached the idea of architecture as a kind of a mediating uh, form of uh, representation between the implicit and the explicit. Like Dalibor Veseli um, mentioned this before. Yeah. And you know, you use the word representation a few times, right? It kind of presupposes that there's some kind of a reality or something out there and mm. one is just... Uh, representing it in some shape or form. Yeah, because I mean, if you're saying something like explicit, explicit to some extent in, 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 in let's just say, um, in in, uh, in hermeneutics, you would say, or in, in, in theory, you would think of explicit as a way of symbolically abbreviating reality, right? Mm. So explicit really is not about all of reality, but actually takes a few pieces of reality and makes them stand in for a larger whole. Some kind of summary of yeah. something. So which, is, which in that sense is a way of uh, condensing, but at the same time, narrowing down one's view. So you leave out a lot also in the process. So I think uh, when I'm saying representation... Something like architecture, as I was saying, is is a world which actually, on the one hand, is symbolic. 
it condenses the whole universe and mediates between us and the universe. I mean, if you look at some ways in which people write about architecture and magic diagrams, for instance, <laughs> you know, it's it's a way yeah. in which you're actually trying to find a symbolic representation of your cosmological assumptions, right? Right. So as a representation, it is a representation. It stands between you and reality. It's reducing reality and making it easily acceptable and digestible to you. But on the other hand, it is a reality also. Yeah. Right? It is also by itself a very powerful reality. I mean, a building is real also, right? It's not just a symbolic representation. So so in that sense, uh, architecture presents that kind of very funny, queer, weird space, right? Which is not reducible either to representation entirely nor to, you know, uh, givenness entirely. I mean, it, it's sort of between the two. And where are we in all this, Trina? Where, where are we as like, as human beings, as bodies, and both as bodies as well as as persons, right? I was because I, when we say hmm. human beings, hmm. um, where is a body in all this? Does it have to do with like if there was another life form? He invoked God. Let's hmm. go away from God for a while. But there are other life forms that you can see and touch around us. Would the implicit be different for different life forms? I I don't quite know an answer to that immediately, but to just pick up on a couple mm. of points that uh, Venu was making, I I I don't know uh, the phenomenologist that you mentioned, but I was actually thinking back to the idea of Plato's cave, the 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 notion that, in fact, all that we conceive of as reality are shadows on right. a wall. So the only the philosopher is in some senses uh, able to turn around to face uh, the the real source of those images. So that's a, that's an old. Uh, sort of platonic idea in some senses but also uh, vis-a-vis architecture I think uh, this idea um, that in some senses what you find in theatre architecture for example down the ages when you look theater at theatre architecture yeah so when you What's look that? at so how theatres are built, how we how we how we say so how the Globe Theatre was built in Shakespeare's time is not quite the way we know the proscenium theatre today. Right. So the proscenium theatre is a thing of very recent invention. Spectatorship of the theatre in Shakespeare's time was very very different. If you go back to Sophocles, uh, maybe uh, to to actually look at the remnants of the kinds of um, theatres that the Greek theatres that are there for us today, we don't have uh, theatres of the time of Sophocles, but we do do have certain sort of ruins of Greek theatres. Uh, when you begin to study uh, how you know spectatorship and architecture vis-à-vis the theatre has changed down the ages, you begin to see that it reflects everything about the cosmology of that particular civilization. So when you look Mm. at the idea that Oedipus is a hero whose intention is bent to the irony that everything he wills is ultimately controlled by faith. So when he thinks he's moving freely, he's actually moving according to the oracle. And then you think of the Epidaurus and remember that you actually have these tiny figures in a humongous amphitheater against this kind of, you know, these sort of uh, sort of huge mountains. And you begin to actually see that the experience of the theater for the Greek audience was really the, uh, the experience of the minuscule nature of 
humankind as as placed against nature and the fates when you look at uh, the globe you see that the globe this, the 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 ceiling of the globe was actually painted exactly like the heavens the 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 the, the, the firmament so the, the the way the elizabethans imagined the firmament so when somebody a character pointed up to the to the stars one was literally actually pointing to the stars right so and and when one said hell one was actually looking mm-hmm. at the the pit of the stage where the trap door opened to actually <laughs> release uh, you know actors who played you know characters who were coming up back from the dead etc so but this the, seem like moves to make explicit i mean there, there isn't mm, um, mm. i mean if you if you point towards the firmament and there mm. are stars painted there or made there sure, or sure sure uh, these these seem to be moves towards explicitness where is the spectator in all this so if if if, if there is something implied mm. there is something implicit there is a certain mm. sense being relayed and obviously not everything can and should be said so, how much of this is this business of interpretation and where where is the spectator see i mean if you remember i mean i will go back to shakespeare because he makes a lot of things clear he also puts a perspective on what we consider to be real on stage today mm-hmm. is something that is entirely in convention and an artifice so the fact that actually right. you were staging plays like the tempest and the and hamlet at 3 uh, pm in the afternoon in broad daylight right you know <laughs> right and when you said thunder you you would have you know drums rolling on the upper story of the of right. the globe to make the sound of you know a drum on a wooden floor so you don't didn't have anything of the illusion that the proscenium stage brought uh, anywhere on in anywhere. that sense the literary text like the play huh. is, mm. is so implicit no i mean you mm. in the sense that it's all left to imagination of whoever is but there again language uh, would play a role mm. you know because uh, you are getting into the text through the novelist's language mm. so it is it acts exactly like say uh, architecture would um, would act you know it is the inroad mm. to the novelist's thought process mm. so again you have a representation in the language of the novelist you see so you are entering that world again there is a there is a doorway you know so it is again in the explicit uh, like homer's iliad and odyssey you know where he uh, actually sketched out um how heaven would look like how hell would look like and how what would happen if you if you know it was geometrically sketched out mm. so it is again um a medium through which you go same thing even a poem you have to go through the language you have to go through the expression so you i don't think you will ever reach the implicit implicit core because everything passes through uh, what we call whether it is design whether it is literature whether it is theater again whatever experiences of uh, you know a pathos a humor or it is all eventually cultural i, I, I mean I, at least culturally learned transmitted yeah, yeah definitely would, would that be entirely non controversial 
I mean, I would agree. I don't know if it will be non-controversial, but I would say that it is completely contextual in terms of uh, culture. So, in in the in the sense that, what I'm saying is that to go back to the idea of language, a lot of the times, uh, say for example, uh, in in Tempest, when the these uh, shipwrecked people land up in an island, right. you don't have a description of the island on stage. You don't have the lights. You don't have the sets. You don't have anything. What paints the scene for you is the description by the characters and the description of the island changes as depending on who the character is watching so shakespeare is already in a sense playing with the spectator's imagination right. and let's just jump to brecht who for mm. his actors would uh, propose something called the not but technique now what was the not but technique so if he had a sentence saying that i will never marry you mm. in a in a uh, in a in a play he would make his actors rehearse five different 10 different variations saying i will marry you I might marry you. Mm-hmm. I might marry you tomorrow. You know everything else that the character is not saying, but could have said. Right. So therefore, the traces of those other things he could have said remain in the dialogue, which is finally spoken to suggest that history is mutable. Things could have happened in many different ways. So Brecht would make. the actors uh, do this during rehearsal yes yes okay, that's, that's so it still remains a brechtian you know acting technique that you you don't speak what you speak as inevitable so whatever you do is dependent on the choices that you make socially and historically and there were many other choices available to you that you could have taken so therefore the artifice in that dialogue remains part of it you don't speak it in a sanislavskian sense which is that this is the only possible and, thing and, and if i knew nothing about brecht and i was like oh. meaningfully Hmm. I had some empathy and ability to connect, and hmm. so on. Would I be able to make those techniques out? Of course, not the fact that the actors, you know, practicing something ten times and not saying the explicit and saying the variant, whatever the opposite variant. Yeah, so you on. would. You um, would. That's how, how, to how, how does that go to the spectator? Like, what does it do? How is that more than a quirk of practice? It's not a quirk. It's a technique. It is of a distanciation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so in the sense that what what he's doing is that he's making it impossible for you to get carried away by the emotion that the that the character is feeling. So, in terms of the acting technique, in terms of his dramaturgy, in the way that the plays are written, he will constantly interrupt any trance-like state you might reach. To 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 sort any of any trance-like state being any state where you are lose yourself. The character. Yeah. anything that could be close to catharsis so mm. he is explicitly saying that i am for an anti aristotelian drama mm. i do not want my uh, sort of uh, spectators to fall uh, sort of be entirely swept up by the emotion that he sees on stage because i want to remember them re- remind them that this is theater this is artifice this is a story being told and it could be told in a different way this is like rashomon Huh. Um, Kurosawa's um, yes, Rashomon, absolutely. where there's a murder that has happened, mm. and um, uh, it has happened in a space, mm. uh, you know, and uh, five people give five different interpretations. So, how do you decide, um, uh, you know, what exactly happened? And mm. in the end, there is no decision because mm. each one tells his or her own narrative. of the incident that has happened so it is like law mm. you know law is also a question of interpretation, interpretation. yes you know so iterability yeah 
exactly so i i also often wonder why the word myth is not used for architecture Mm-hmm. because when you say that it is between the explicit and the implicit it is point. mythical mm-hmm. it yeah. is mythical yeah. because mm-hmm. you want to create the idea of a home mm-hmm. and you work to get your elements together which is explicit which is rendered mm-hmm. uh, but uh, you don't want to say it is myth because one home is a different myth from another home so a chawl is a different idea of a home versus a bungalow and uh, you know why is it that uh, we shy away from uh, you know using the word myth because that is exactly what a myth does is gets two opposites to reconcile mm. in a myth space Mm-hmm. You see, so there is a good and a bad. Are these myths universal? Yes. Because you know, a little while ago, mm-hmm. and I know we shouldn't be playing with words and not be stupid mm-hmm. about it, but there is a way in which the implicit is always contextual. Mm-hmm. But there is a way in which all myths are somewhat universal. No? They are absolutely universal, and there I would go by Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a fabulous mythologist mm-hmm. who said that the world is united on a handful of myths. you know because we all live by very simple oppositions between good and bad evil and you know heroic and black and white and uh, th- and that's it if you really look at advertising if you lo- really look at architecture you look at design solutions you look at anything it boils down to solving the very same universal problems you know where we want simple comfort we want solace we want happiness we want love and if you just look at the world around you films are all about that um advertising advertising is all about that consumption culture is all about that malls are all about that you know comfort so we live in a world of what we call mark oge the anthropologist said that we live in a world of um you know constant travel so an airport is a non place we don't live in a world of place we live in a world of non places so in an airport when you're there you want to feel you know there's going to be delays so you put in that much more money into making an airport of space of comfort because you're going to spend an awful amount of time there you don't spend time in your own apartment as much as you spend time at the airports <laughs> isn't it i mean really we just go to the apartments in the night and uh, crash you see so we are out all the time and more and more of cities and urban planning is all about that non places so so seema this design philosophy would presume that there are some of these deep needs that exist and the job of design is just tap into that to Absolutely. cater to that i think so and it's not the other way around where the it comes from where, the where design designers could create needs of course now there are variants and corollaries of all this although i i i i probably try and respond to that but i just want to pick up on one point which i think is seems to be a recurring thing that's coming up which is a certain emphasis on the stability of certain myths or an emphasis upon the sort of enduring nature of the human condition somehow coming through of some notion of universality which is at work here which i think also has to be contested something deep yeah. something stable because, something stable because i think 
if you're if for instance and it's very interesting for instance to talk about architecture this particular moment in time i'll explain why i mean if you even and this idea of the implicit because certain things which have been implicit for a very long time like the earth goes around the sun right that there is day there is night certain seasons in the year all of these are givens right and in terms of whatever we understand scientifically and experientially and then you have something like catastrophic climate change right which actually indicates that certain givens are wobbly or are not exactly telling us exactly the things that we would expect them to be right or it seems to indicate that certain givens will change dramatically and this is apparently a universal problem right a problem for all human beings at some level or it will affect of course there will be differentiation in terms of who is rich and who's poor and who gets affected more and less but it still is a matter that is a global crisis right so then what does one do when certain things which one assumes to be the stable implicits that even constitute shakespearean drama right i mean if you're talking about the tempest and you're talking about the environment and you're talking about the ocean and you're talking about this tempestuous you know environment that is a reference to a world however unstable it may be but still implicit within that is a world which is mercurial but behaving in a way in which we expect this oceanic world to behave right so i'm just saying that like how does one begin to imagine a new time where a lot of these stable givens which we take for granted are now um you know and sometimes in perhaps politically but certainly environmentally not exactly how we'd expect them to be so these so i think in so that what, so what exactly needs revision here so the tempest of the island of prospero and all these things are fine so if we're enacting um enacting tempest in hmm tomorrow evening hmm. what what it wouldn't what, need what, a revision what? as much as it would i just the, yeah the the imagination or the interpretation or the reception of that is um different compared to what might have been the case 100 years ago i think what is being what's being whittled away at and there's this thing that's gnawing away at certitude right that uh, that we know nature that we know the environment right that nature behaves according to the sovereignty of these natural laws right human beings behave according to the sovereignty of these you know human laws right i mean so this sovereignty of 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 certain stable realities begins to sort of come slightly unhinged maybe not dramatically maybe not too powerfully but it, the doubt gets introduced somewhere and i think that has an impact on how we write and how we think and how we discourse i think that's certainly what you see in let's say a lot of climate writing in the humanities is this sort of sense of doubt you know the sense of like this distinction between natural histories and human histories becoming a little less uh uh clear and so i think so in, the idea of the implicit contains so much of the natural world within it right that this everything has to behave in a certain way for life to exist everything has to behave in a certain way for us to endure so then the moment something was um not entirely according to plan in that implicit are new are new myths created I mean, yeah. they may be rare occurrences and they don't happen every wednesday but uh, because yeah. if if something if 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 climate change is happening and if this is like very 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 rare thing 
then it's obviously very foundational and very deep then you need something very deep to go into all of our heads yeah so become uh, a part of a collective memory and so on and be there thousand years later see to take what uh, venu was saying is that the only thing which in my opinion is stable is instability there is nothing which is you know i mean we all live with the implicit knowledge that things are unstable and all the myths that are created are actually a way to try and address this instability and uh, there is i so, don't think so it's compliant with that absolutely it's compliant with the fact that i think any new myth that emerges and venu is absolutely right when he says that new kind of uh, you know um, whether it's climate change or whether it is ecology and uh, we need a new kind of um, articulations you know and that is where we will uh, which is why i mean it is also very difficult to see how the communications industry despite so much of progress technologically doesn't seem to uh, give new ways of thinking what do you mean communications industry i mean advertising or i mean you know whether it's the media or whether it is uh, you know this this whole technical uh, skill which we are all acquiring every day mm. um has potential of deep thinking has potential of going way beyond what they are churning out as the same old uh, narrative over and over again for that you have trina's theater yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, so this reminds me yeah. of a tea um um i um, you know project that i had done applied semiotics many years ago almost 25 tea, tea for a tea brand a famous tea brand and uh, you know we were uh, working around how tea is communicated okay in advertising and ad after ad the tea was about a woman uh serving tea to the man sure prospective in-laws or to prospective <laughs> husband and um, there was and it was all in the drawing room so the sets were all the same it was white uh, cups with gold rim yeah in a, with a cup with a saucer right mm-hmm. so the the elements were all the same the articulation was exactly the same till we stepped in and we said you know what let's generate a hypothesis on the basis of what these tea commercials are actually saying metonymic displacements right. without actually saying so we said that there must be something about this one tea brand where people women are responding to and not able to say and you won't believe it it was about a satin red dress that this woman was wearing and prancing around tea gardens in their ad right which was creating a dissonance right mm. you know so here we were with this with this finding you know which we semiotically interpreted or decoded it within mm. the organization and then we went to the consumers and we said you know uh, what is it that is a tea moment for you so they said um you know it was first they said breakfast tea with my husband and my in-laws and then somebody else said something and then one woman said you know what my 4 o'clock cup of tea when i drink and i slurp right <laughs> you know and i slurp so loudly that i am with myself now this was a myth that we offered to the brand 
psychological slope. You know, where we said that here is a woman who doesn't want to see herself serving tea. Right. With to her prospective in-law. She just wants to be with herself. This was 27 years ago. And we said, let's change the narrative and the articulation to sort of address what this woman wants. And they brought out a completely different advertising. And it changed the tea discourse forever. Because everybody else banked into that. And every then it became Desh Ki Chai. We also said, Tea served in cullards, tea served in glasses, tea served at railway stations. So the point is that so we sometimes have the implicit can become cliche, it can become the background, which is just Absolutely. Hmm. So it is all in the rendering, in the articulation, and I think you know it'll be great if Venu could also talk about uh, architectural renderings, you know, which or product design or design renderings. Um, where is the where is the environment in all this the, 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 the where is the world for the building where I don't want to constrain and restrict architecture to just building because sure, it's not sure um, I think thing is that um, architecture is particularly relevant at this time although not too many people seem to find it to be such an interesting artifact in my experience but I think it particularly at this at this time of environmental crisis I think it's important to probably look more closely at this mediating role that architecture plays, as I said, on the one hand as an artifact that is inherently implicit and on the other hand an artifact that also makes explicit. I mean, it's this one kind of space at least that one sees where both these uh, ways of um, you know experience uh, simultaneously manifest and that's what uniquely... Uh, qualifies it to actually begin to think about the environment with which also it mediates. And I think partly in my own work, for instance, on Gandhi, I mean, I was just talking about this hut of Gandhi in Vardha. That's the challenge about writing about that space because one isn't entirely clear if one must look at that hut as... Uh, that which is implicit in Gandhi's life. So Gandhi is the foreground and this hut is the background. Or must one be looking at uh, the hut as the foreground and something else as the background, right? So, so this notion of what is this latent implicit world and what is this explicit world becomes very confusing when one is talking about architecture and the environment. And I think specifically... But is the, there necessarily a relation? Is there necessarily a relation between the Vardha Hut and Gandhi? There may not be or there may be. I mean, I, I'm just sure. saying that one has to look at both possibilities. But one thing that if you're talking about modern architecture, for instance, which is, you know, uh, let's say sure. the architecture that is in you know the Nehruvian period, for instance, one of the challenges of talking about that architecture as a mediating discourse is that firstly, uh, what is the implicit towards which that architecture sort of points towards? I mean, that's a question one could ask, for instance. And mostly the normative answer to that question is that it is technology. Does that always need to be? It need not be. But I think one of the accusations that people hold against modernism is that it it created its own implicit world, which has nothing to do whatsoever with the kind of cultural environments into which it was being introduced. It was not referencing anything. It was not referencing anything but itself. 
So which is why it became a very kind of a private experience, a very individual induced fantasy rather than something that was inherently social or responding to some social larger societal conception of the implicit or you know uh, the given, right? So in that sense modern architecture presented that paradox at least in India. And I think uh but at the same time one cannot deny that the implicit or the given that modern architecture was referencing which is this technological utopia the scientific paradise this new world this world of rational thinking and equality also has its merits because sometimes this thing that you reference or try to reference could also be in the future no could be could because be. but it is a future which is a future because a scientific through. utopia or whatever that these were trying to reference were not there yeah they were not there but they were also political aspirations at that time uh, a future of equality of prosperity perhaps but certainly equality and freedom you know so these were sort of the qualities with, with which modern architecture was infused and that becomes its kind of implicit world but at the same time it is not explicit to those who are living in it at that particular moment in time because the rest of the environment is not responding to that kind of uh, content because modernism there was no place for nostalgia yeah. and memory yeah. in this kind of architecture you see you had to give away so you can't keep artifacts in your house which remind you of uh, you know the the past generation or because you have to move you have to move into a rational uh, realm you know so a house is meant so there was a functionality there was but that's form. that's when you want to jettison the past that's when at some level you either ashamed of it or you shy of it or um is it is, is it a progressive um desire or it's i mean it's it was a western um, you know it's 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 like saying that a site like ebay Hmm. took its own time to in even now we don't have um you know ebay yeah. um users in large numbers in india because you don't sell things off because nostalgia and memory still plays a big role yeah. in in our arts and crafts i mean yeah. you know you use and you reuse even in our everyday life everyday life right yeah. you don't just chuck away something because it it it's no longer of use to you right asian philosophy does not talk about throwing away things or uh, like japanese art for example if a, if a bowl is broken or they a vase is broken they they uh, they gold, they gold. The that's right they, they, that's right they pair it to, so the, the, that's the point um, is that the nehruvian uh, sense of a rational future or a scientific temper and moving into a world where we leap forward and hence i think um, i don't know i mean if modernism really uh, worked since and today we no longer live in that world in any case we live in a meta modern world where uh, you know we sort of don't even know where our roots are we live we just pick up roots wherever we are you know so we live in a world of what we call uh, rhizomes so we are all individual rhizomes and uh, you know we create our own identities on facebook twitter instagram and so we don't really need that that kind of rationality anymore so the implicit is in fact i think um, you know given way to more and more explicit uh, articulations of who we want to be we we don't 
we we don't want to be uh, what was defined for us but we want to be what is the possibility all that rituals play um I, in, I, because so much of this kind of goes to directing our attention towards what we can know and not know right and there is of course there is this symbolic world and you know there will be simulations like mm-hmm. sima and the things that you know explicitly that you're able to transmit but the things that maybe only your body knows the things mm-hmm. that are known non linguistically is is there such a world there is right <laughs> Yeah you could uh, you could speak of it that way I mean this is going to be slightly perhaps slightly long answer I was thinking of um, going back to the questions of myth and environment that we were sort mm. of you know uh, centering on a few minutes back and I was actually thinking back on how a lot of this certainty that Venu was talking about that is today sort of uh, in flux is also a, a result of um, a historical moment that we know know as european enlightenment in the sense that you know when sure. kant sort of dis- defines enlightenment he's saying it's the release of i mean i don't remember verbatim it's the release of man from his self incurred immaturity right and it's also the time at which the baconian notion of fact is coming into being uh by the time we let's say find the frankfurt school talking about enlightenment let's say people like adorno and horkheimer who are right. writing in 1947 a book called dialectics of enlightenment they're looking back really on the history of western enlightenment but also on the immediate history of fascism in europe mm-hmm. which they had to escape in order to because most of them were jews most of them had left leaning political views and they had to escape to america in order to be to survive and also to work so what they are then saying is that what the enlightenment does is uh sort of create this clear binary division between myth and reason now the idea that myth is really a space of this kind of where man has this relationship of powerlessness in relation to nature, nature. and uh reason brings in a world where suddenly you have uh, ob- you know the the subject who is in possession of reason and everything else which is object which can be object to that reason so where basically reason is this kind of all consuming mechanism which can study anything and make it explicit nothing remains a mystery anymore now what adorno and horkheimer is saying is that this is actually and this is why it's called dialectics of enlightenment this is a self defeating process because in this way reason finally becomes exactly what it sought to oppose it becomes a kind of myth, myth yeah mm-hmm. because it became becomes like fate in a sense right so anything whatever you place in front of it whatever force of nature whatever being whatever animal whatever event it's it believes it can if it works out right uh, make it explicit completely know it completely and this is where in a, in many senses i think the you know this is also a colonial form of thinking about knowledge and people and you know and, and we have to admit that a lot of our disciplines whether it be history or anthropology have roots in colonial forms of right. knowledge production right so therefore and the, the criticism then begins to arise from people who would then argue that you know admit to the fact that this is arrogance that there are things that remain you know culturally untranslatable the things that remain implicit you know so and there 
Say, for example, some of the things that I was uh, had mentioned this, before. Uh, hmm. So there is such a thing hmm. as culturally untranslatable. Culturally untranslatable. Oh. So it's the cultural aspect of things that is not translatable, or it. it there, uh, there are two things there. Uh, two things implicit in what i said one mm-hmm. is the fact that there are you know so say for example performance studies theorists like diana taylor would argue that there are things that remain incommensurable that cannot be entirely translated and made transparent between one culture and the other but they also argue that there are repertoires of the body of bodily practices of performances of songs of storytelling that in fact cannot be discursively translated so not all performance can be sort of transparently transcribed into ethnographic notes which is something that even or rather repertoire cannot be archived repertoire that cannot be entirely archived, archived. and Put she sees the archival project as primarily a project rooted in in reason col- or in reason and colonialism as well mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, therefore, she says that the repertoires exist that are beyond uh, the, you know, discursive translation, and uh, this is something that even Geertz, who didn't believe in universal myths, in fact, he would speak about cultural right. context, would still believe that a, every culture, once you learnt it well enough, was translatable into some kind of anthropological note. he he believed in thick description which by the time you come to people like diana taylor writing from latin america looking at But why the, would it be so why what is so special about hmm. our culture or some culture or that that because there has to be something about it which makes it untranslatable right see the point is because it's not it's not about choosing one camp or the other it's it's about trying to understand <laughs> no. why there are aspects that are not translatable see if we were speaking from a point where we Because had Because it may have to do with the form of knowledge itself it may have to do with True I mean knowledge being non-linguistic and some say no I think you said something similar non-discursive Yeah I mean that would be a question that would be sort of absolutely reasonably posed if we did not have certain embedded histories to our discipline so what we consider the objective form of knowledge is always already historically tied to certain modes of thinking which might be uh, sort of which the history of which we forget so when we when we think of anthropology we cannot think of the roots of that discipline without thinking of the remembering the history of colonialism right so when we think of, there's nothing special about that culture but there's something special about our discipline right which we begin to see as neutral after a point because that's the common sensical way we are made to think which is where you know some somebody like you know you might not find it that's in a, academic work but you know someone like borges writing a story like the ethnographer which is a two page story about how if you carry this logic to its sort of logical end that you know everything becomes knowable if you learn the cultural ways enough it in some senses um, does away with the discipline itself because once you begin to sort of um, forget your cultural prejudices to a degree that you can study a new culture entirely on its terms the discipline of anthropology becomes unnecessary you know what are you producing that knowledge for you ultimately sending it back to some kind of an academic or political center and you believe that the other places are peripheries yeah this is interesting what is an archive for you like for for the architect in you for the art historian in you because i find this distinction 
between repertoire and archive very interesting because it seems mm-hmm. like the repertoire has something implicit, let's say, mm-hmm. and archive is this process of, and we'll get to this business of what can and cannot be captured. But what is it for you as a... I think I can only speak about my own experiences uh, as a student. And you try to do that with Gandhi and Bardha, right? Yeah, because I think that's what I can sort of draw from as a resource. But I think Mm. that also is slightly older works and hopefully moving on to other things. That's right. But um, specifically in, for instance, I first trained as an architect. So I think uh, it took me a lot of time to learn how to write. After, because I started writing afterwards, you know, much later. So I started off initially as an art, artist and an architect. You did engineering drawings before. And a lot of that. <laughs> so I think, uh, so it took me a while to begin to understand how to write about this knowledge that I have, you know, which I didn't know that there is any implicit worth in it as much as it's the knowledge that any student of architecture has. But then, uh, so entering an art history program, it was so difficult learning how to write and to value all of these things which were just second nature to me. You know, mm. like su- suddenly these things are becoming very important, right? And you're not quite sure why. <laughs> so mm. I think a lot of this knowledge which was implicit, which was, you know, a part of your training as an architect, you suddenly realize is, you know, people look at it very carefully when they're writing about it. And this is not as simple as it seems. So I think in that are, transition... Are, are we just romanticizing things? No, I mean, that's what I was, I was finding it very odd, you know, initially when I thought that why would something which is so trivial as a skill suddenly seem so important to those who are writing about it, who are clearly not trained as architects. (laughs) But I think as time, I I think that was, I I came to change my understanding of it, which is that if one applies oneself to that system of description, Hmm. if one applies oneself uh, systematically to that kind of observation, then there are results that come out of it which are completely different from the ones that come out of architectural training. You know, and that took me many more years to find out. So I think purely... In what are the results? Which is to say that there is something to comparing textual sources and architectural plan drawings, for instance, which is not an ability that I did uh, gain as an architect, right? But I mean, it's only when I'm also writing about it, moving back and forth between writing and the plan, that I begin to realize that there is something to be said about reflecting on it from, you know, as, as, as a writer about this plan, doing just a description of the plan, where instead of simply making the plan, you try and look at the plan dispassionately and try and sort of simply describe it. I think that in itself was a very challenging task. Even though I knew how to make plans, I didn't know how to describe an architectural plan drawing. So I think learning those things show you that to some extent... You know, moving between these two entirely incommensurable spaces produces something which is a third, which is not reducible to either. Sometimes they may not be commensurable, right? I mean, you cannot translate all mathematical proofs or equations to describing them. A lot of mathematicians cringe at that thought. But But I think even that disjunction is a unique set of experiences. That's true. You know, and I think... uh, which I was not privy to as a student of architecture initially, nor subsequently as a writer in training. But it's only gradually I felt there is some value to this cross, you know, moving back and forth. Mm. So I think purely in terms of that, uh, I feel... um, What was your question again when you sort of started off? Archive. Archive, yes. So I think uh, (laughs) the difficulty was that... uh, when you're writing architectural histories, for instance, right? I mean, uh, should you look at this entire corpus of, uh, let's say, uh, discourse, 
you know like people what are the news what's the newspaper saying around about this you know what are the what are people saying about these buildings or should you just look at the building itself should you yeah. look at like you know what is implicit within its construction you should look at only plans what do they tell us about the separation of space power relationships etc so i think uh, it takes a while to actually get to the second level even though i'm a trained architect i still it took me a lot more time to reach uh, to read a drawing than to simply read text you know trina uh, can a dance performance be recorded of course it can be we know we can put a camera in front of it and yeah but there's something that's lost what is that something because maybe that's the answer that we're trying to put a finger on and we are in the last 5 minutes so we're going to get that from you All right. So, uh, so say for example, uh, dance uh, studies theorists like Susan Foster would say that there have been many sort of attempts at um, creating notifications for dance notations for dance performances, right. right? So you have many like the, the Laban and, the, and right. all of that. So, uh, but the fact that you can't actually, even if those notations are then copied exactly, you cannot reproduce what a particular performance was. So, mm-hmm. a lot of performance studies theorists would then ag- uh, argue, like Peggy Feeler. that um uh, what is a performance cannot the ontology of a performance the very essence of a performance lies in the fact that it cannot in fact be reproduced and when you do record and, and reproduce it it's a part of its it, definition it's a part yeah, of its ontology yeah so yeah. yeah so you what you have is a sort of mnemonic device for the performance but not the performance itself and that lies in something called presence which is in the proximity of bodies uh, which which are in the presence of each other and experience something together so in that sense she says something very paradoxical she says the performance's ontology lies in its disappearance the fact that it disappears so so yeah. but that's a huge debate within this so there are many people who've argued against sounds uh, right to me sounds right to you <laughs> well you know a lot of people have later now contemporary theorists are arguing that the what was valorized as presence in performance studies in the 80s and 90s is really something called presence effect right which is also part of this kind of artifice where you try to say that well we've broken out of the picture frame stage and we are <laughs> immediate presence of bodies next to each other but that's also artifice in the end so there's a lot of controversy around that in the field of performance studies yeah What is this for? What is this presence thing for this immutation in you? It's the absence of. It's the the um, it's the displacement of a lot of things, you know. So um, I would say, like like the rust theory says, you know, it's a moment of rasa, you know, mm-hmm. which is so you um, experience. a performance a dance or any form of aesthetics at a given point in time where you peak right at that moment peak you know the peak you know where you reach that moment of rasa and the performance mm. guides you to that moment of rasa mm. right so each one of us has something which is our implicit yeah but it is guided by the alap which is guided by the the first uh, steps taken by the artist and then when the artist reaches the peak you respond to it um as per your um, you know whatever context or but each 
spectator enjoys it nevertheless a lot of times you know people who don't know hindustani music classical music also sit and enjoy it and there is no a uh, forbidden sense of you can't be there because you don't know mm. right mm. even the sound so we are a tradition of sound it's it's first the phonetics right mm. you know and it is it is the phonetics which creates an experience you know it's the sound that creates the first experience in us and then comes the the letters and then comes the writing and then then comes the sentence structure syntax and then comes semantics and semiotics so to me the implicit is first in the sound the orality mm. and you know so the chinese name their babies on the basis of the sound Mm. you know so it is the whole world is is dependent on this sound structure what's the future we'll end with that was can what what cannot be made explicit is there such a thing would you say that if one thinks of human history over hundreds and thousands of years there is this gradual progression towards making the implicit somewhat more explicit now obviously do you know what i mean is there such a thing as less implicit more implicit is there such a thing as less ex- i think we create more and more implicits as we claim to make things more explicit so even the implicit grows there's always something that is unsayable and then there are two things one is unsayable because there are constraints and the other is unsayable because sometimes we have to g- give up our arrogance that we can know everything <laughs> so <laughs> yeah true <laughs> so where are you on this way no well i think um and also trying to tie it in with this question mm. of presence uh i feel like there's this idea of the promise of presence always which is you know that everything is leading to some idea at its core some foundational full presence you know which we're all reaching towards which we want to make explicit but i think rather than actually identifying such a full presence for instance with speech as you're saying i would I would defer that. I mean if you mm. you know there's so much writing on speech and phenomena which you, you you've studied. So I think the the idea being that um that what is this idea of uh the promise of a pre- of presence or full presence. Mm. And for instance architecture is the one artifact that actually is the evidence of our desire for full presence mm. because it is something which is solid it is stable it endures in time right so people invest a lot in architecture sometimes because mm. they want to get across their message through time and to ensure this full presence endures right and which at the same time the closer you get to the heart of full presence oftentimes you find that it's wobbly that it's 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 exactly it's the opposite of what it assures us right i mean i'm just saying the most stable concepts you know uh, of of that we know for instance of the, about the environment which which had assured us the full presence of seasons the full presence of you know certain things which we would take for air we breathe mm. right all of these are up for grabs now yeah. so so i mean That's at some point. so at some level so full wobbly, presence is yeah. it's wobbly because the world around us wobbly it's perhaps but i think it it's it, it might not so much point towards something new in this world as much as it takes us back to a, a more fundamental wobbliness which is the, mm. the sort of the necessity of wobbliness yeah. you know in a the certain unstable. way unstable yeah mm. good i think that's a good note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again thank, thank you. you so much thank you thank you thanks so much thank you